Uh, good evening, brothers and sisters. Please do have a seat and please do keep your uh, Bibles open on that passage. Uh, if you've lost it, it's page 1069, page 1069, John chapter 11, verses 22 to 42. Uh, and uh, in your bulletin, the white bulletin that you received as you came in, uh, you see there is an outline of the sermon in the center pages of the bulletin, so uh, that will help you to see where we're up to as well. Uh, but most importantly, John chapter 10, from verse 22 to verse 42, page 1069. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit, through your Word. And we thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word has been read and sung. Uh, and we pray now that as we come to consider this passage together, you continue to do that. Uh, we pray that your Spirit will enable me to, to preach your word rightly in his power. Uh, we pray that your Spirit will open our hearts, um, that we might hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, uh, and hearing we might see him, we might love him, uh, we might obey and follow him. Uh, so we uh, commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, when I teach the Bible overview class on Tuesday nights, uh, we trace a storyline of the Bible, uh, and we see how the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And I often get asked an interesting question. How come so many Jews of Jesus' day didn't believe? How come so many religious leaders rejected Jesus when the Old Testament speaks so clearly about him? Now, you can answer a question like that in two different ways. Because you see, on the one hand, God is sovereign. He's in control, nothing surprises him. On the other hand, look at it from the other direction, we see that human beings are responsible. We are morally accountable for our actions. Both those things are true. Now, both are taught by Scripture. Neither one should be denied in favor of the other. We can look at one and look at the other, but our mind's not quite big enough to imagine both of them at the same time. When we think of why the Jewish leaders of Jesus, they didn't believe in him, also we can look at it from two angles. On the one hand, from the human responsibility side, we could, we could talk about their hypocrisy. Uh, we could talk about their desire to preserve peace with the Romans. Uh, you could talk about how they wanted to, to protect their interests, their, their social and religious standing. All of those are true. But in our passage today, Jesus exposes the, the other side of the answer. And in a few moments... We will hear Jesus tell the Jews to their faces the ultimate reason why they don't believe. And as we hear him do that, we will hear him speak about himself, the good shepherd, and how he relates to his sheep and to his father. The setting of this passage is the Feast of Dedication. Now, we see that in verse 22. That feast was in December. And so the events of this passage probably happened about a month or two after the, the, what we saw last week about Jesus being the Good Shepherd. But let me tell you a little bit about this Feast of Dedication. A wicked Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple in 167 BC. He had installed an idol of Zeus in the temple, and he even offered a pig on the altar. This happened between Old Testament and New Testament times, but we know it's important because there's even a fairly detailed prediction of it in the Old Testament book of Daniel. 
Well, three years later, the Jews managed to retake Jerusalem. They started with guerrilla warfare. They grew stronger and stronger under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. Eventually, they drove out the Greeks and they, they cried, Merdeka, or whatever their Jewish equivalent was. They cleaned out the temple. They got rid of the idols. And they rededicated the temple to God. Every year, they celebrated that time with this feast of dedication. And our passage is set at the time of this feast. And the place where the incident happens, is verse 23, is in the temple itself. It's the part of the temple called the Colonnade of Solomon. The Colonnade of Solomon is it's like, a, it's like a covered porch around the outside, the, 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 uh, around the perimeter of the temple, a little bit like the porch you see outside here, but much bigger. Okay? Uh, and in the center, inside, was, was courtyard open. Right? Uh, and the porch where it, it is covered. Uh, remember, it is winter, uh, and winter there is cool, but, but tends to be rainy. And so it makes sense that Jesus is walking in the porch, in the colonnade of Solomon, uh, as he's there in the temple. So here we are at the feast of the dedication of the temple, in the temple itself. And Jesus is walking there in verse 24, and the Jews, that is the Jewish leadership, they gather around him. They encircle him. They want some answers from him before they let him go. And they say to him in verse 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, that's an interesting request, isn't it? Because Jesus, hasn't he already told them? In multiple different ways, over and over again. But actually, in very clever ways in ways that force them to think about what he says in light of the Old Testament if they're to understand. In fact, speaking plainly earlier on in John's Gospel, he's even claimed to be Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, but he hasn't actually simply come out directly to these Jewish leaders and say, in so many words, I am the Messiah. Oh yes, he's, he's taught his disciples, or at least he's, he's led them to work it out for themselves and then affirm their answer. He's told the Samaritan woman straight out. And actually, he has told the Jews, but not as plainly as they would want him to. Why do you think they want him to speak plainly about being the Messiah? Well, remember, the Jews, they were already wanting to put Jesus to death. When they got really mad, they would pick up stones to stone him. But they knew it was illegal. When they were thinking with their brains instead of their emotions, they knew they would have to use the Romans to execute him. And so they probably want a quote, a soundbite, something they can take to the Romans and say, look, see, see, see what this, this man says he's the Messiah, which means he must be a rebel against Caesar. His claim to be, I am, the, the, the God of Israel, oh, that's, that's very upsetting for them as Jews, but of no use to them politically. Try going to the Romans and say, uh, this guy claims to be our God we think you should put him to death. <laughs> just laugh at your face. But if you go to the Romans and say, this guy claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, who's, who, who's prophesied to, to, to rule the world, king of his kingdom, well, they might take things a little bit more seriously, especially if he does it in the temple on the anniversary of the liberation of Jerusalem from the Greeks by those Jewish rebels 200 years before that. 
Come on, they say, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're God's promised king who's going to come and rule us. Just sailor. But Jesus is too smart to be caught by them. He answers in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. And then he gives proof of who he is without, without actually saying it. Verse 25, he continues, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Uh, Jesus done the things that the Old Testament said would happen at the coming of the kingdom. He's made the lame to walk. He's made the blind to see. And none of those things was illegal. But all of them show loud and clear who he was. The Jewish leaders, they knew what Jesus had been doing. They should have believed in him. But they didn't. Why? Well, Jesus' answer is in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. That's the real reason. Now, there may be many reasons on the human responsibility side of it, but on the, ultimately, ultimately, Jesus is saying he is the Messiah, he is the king, but they're not part of the Israel that he's king of. He's the good shepherd, but they're not his sheep. Remember the, the, the picture that Jesus painted in our passage last week? Shepherd comes to the pen. What does he do? He calls out the sheep that belong to him. He calls them, and what do they do? The ones who belong to him. They come. They hear his voice, and they come. They follow the shepherd. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. If you are one of my sheep, he tells these Jewish leaders, that's what you'd do. You'd believe me, but you're not. My brother, my sister, if you are someone who has heard the voice of Jesus in the gospel and believed in him, you have done so because you are one of Jesus' sheep. You have been given to him by the Father. You are his. Now, you mustn't be proud or arrogant about that. You weren't smarter than anyone else, or certainly you weren't better than anyone else. No, 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 no. If, if we are Jesus' sheep, we are to be grateful and humble. Grateful that we belong to him and humble because we know it is only by God's grace and no greatness of our own. We were, as Jesus is about to say in verse 29, given to him by the Father. And sisters and brothers, it is a wonderful thing to be one of Jesus' sheep. God gives us many blessings, but this is, this is the best of all. It is much better than health or wealth or family or friends or, or anything else that is good in this life. For Jesus says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
Eternal life means life the way it was meant to be. Life in, in perfect relationship with God uh, and, and with His people in the new creation forever. It means the ultimate fulfillment of enjoying God perfectly and serving Him the way we were meant to. And that is the opposite of perishing, which is being under His judgment forever. Jesus says He gives His sheep eternal life and they will never perish. And he adds at the end of verse 28, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. They are secure. In fact, he continues in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. They are perfectly secure. Their security is guaranteed by Jesus and the father. You remember the blind man who, who we saw healed two weeks ago? He was one of Jesus' sheep. He worshipped Jesus when Jesus called him and the Jewish leaders, they tried to snatch him away, but, but they weren't able to. My brother, my sister, if you are one of Jesus' sheep, then no one can snatch you away from his hand or his father's hands. There is no man or woman, angel or demon, no one who can overpower him and send you to hell. God has got you safe and secure in his loving hands. And he will keep you for all eternity. That's something to be grateful for, isn't it? You know, sometimes people find these words of Jesus hard to believe because they think it's a license for sin. If you know you're saved, then you just go and do whatever you like. Lah. Go and sin, whatever you want. But that, that can't be right, can it? Because if you are his sheep, then you will listen to his voice and you will follow him. If you say, I don't want to follow this shepherd, I just want to wander around as I like, and I don't want to repent of my sins, I, well, that's, that's not the attitude of his sheep, is it? It is the shepherd's sheep who are eternally secure. Not those who say they are sheep, but don't actually listen to the shepherd. Well, Jesus has said some quite controversial things here but then he adds something even more controversial in verse 30 I and the father are one well, what does he mean by that uh, could he be saying that he and the father are one and the same person if you say uh, no one can snatch us out of his hand and no one can snatch us out of the father's hand because actually it's the same hand the same person here. Or is he saying they're one in purpose? Jesus won't let his sheep be snatched away. The Father also won't let his sheep be snatched away. Why? Because they're a team. They work together for the guarding of the sheep. They... Or is it something else entirely? Well, the Jews seem to think the first one, that is, he's claiming to be the Father. In verse 31, they pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them somewhat sarcastically, perhaps. I have shown you many good works, verse 32, from the Father. From which, for which of them are you going to stone me? Well, they clarify in verse 33, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, 
but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, how does Jesus respond? He's not going to deny that he is God. We've seen before in John's gospel, Jesus claimed to be Yahweh. I am the God of Israel. At the same time, he's not actually claiming to be the Father. It may sound like he's claiming to be the Father, but that's not actually what he's saying. What he says sounds blasphemous, but it isn't really. And so Jesus takes an example from the Old Testament which parallels this phenomenon. He's not saying it's the same thing, but like what he said, what he's just said, is something that sounds blasphemous, and then you realize it can't be. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Now what's that about? You remember Psalm 82, which we sang just now? Did you find it a little bit puzzling as we sang it? God is calling these unjust rulers that he's talking to in the, in the divine council, and he's calling them gods. And he calls them to, to account for the injustice they've shown. What, what do you do with a passage like that? Do you say, well, actually, there's only one God. We, we've seen that in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah. Well, so this psalm must be blaspheming. Or do you say, there's something here that I don't understand. I, I trust the Bible is God's word, and therefore it can't be blasphemous. If there's a problem, it's my limited understanding rather than the Bible. Now, Psalm 82 is very difficult to understand. There are actually three main schools of thought about who God is referring to as gods here. Uh, first of all, he'd be talking to the rulers of the nation. Some people think that. He's calling them gods because they, they think they are gods or they're considered gods or they have, they have God-like function in being the rulers. Other people think he's talking about spiritual beings that have got special responsibility for particular nations. Other people think he's talking to Israel and her leaders who are meant to show God's law and show God's character to the world around and therefore called gods. None of these options are without difficulty. If you can think of other options, I'll be happy to hear about them. But in the end, it doesn't actually matter for our passage whom God is referring to in the psalm. Jesus' point remains the same. It sounds blasphemous, but we trust that actually it's not. Friends, whenever we find a passage of Scripture like Psalm 82 that we find hard to understand, we cannot just throw it away or dismiss it or say it's blasphemous or say it's wrong. I can't, we can't say, oh, I disagree with the psalmist because it's not just the words of the psalmist, is it? It's, it's the Word of God. Uh, Jesus says in verse 35, the Word of God, the Scriptures, cannot be broken. And so when confronted with something that we don't understand, we need to be humble before God's Word. We need to accept our limitations. Both Jesus and the Jews knew that. That was actually their common ground in their dispute. Although I fear that it's sometimes something we forget in our churches. There are times we hear people say, oh, I disagree with Paul on that, or I disagree with James on this. No, 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 friends, we, we can't do that. Because the Scriptures are not just the words of men, it's the Word of God. God stands behind it. 
You are free to disagree with Andrew. I might be quite wrong in my understanding. But you're not free to disagree with God. And since the Bible is the word of God, you and I are not free to disagree with the Bible. Jesus said, the scriptures cannot be broken. And so Jesus says in verse 35, 34 and 35, it's not written in the law, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? Do you see what he's saying? Jesus said, I am the son of God. That, that sounded blasphemous to them as well. But just like they cannot accuse the Bible of being blasphemous because it's God's word, they shouldn't actually accuse Jesus of being blasphemous because, because he's the one the Father has sent. What he said might sound blasphemous to a monotheistic Jewish ear, just like it sounds blasphemous to the ears of our Muslim friends. But if we accept the scriptures when you don't understand, even when it looks blasphemous because you know it's God's word, how about showing the same deference to Jesus, whom the Father has sent into the world? Those who are Jesus' sheep will do that. They will believe him. They may not understand the Trinity, but they will trust that it's not blasphemous. And they will trust that any problems they have with it is only because of their own limited understanding. If we understand Jesus rightly, of course it's not blasphemous. Jesus is the one, verse 36, whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world. In other words, he's the only member of the Trinity that is set apart, consecrated, set apart to become human. And he comes and he claims, verse 36, to be the Son of God, which he is. He's the eternal Son. From all eternity, he's the Son. That is not blasphemy. That is true. And we know it's true because he does the work of the Son. He does all that the Father does. He says in verse 37, 38, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, then believe the works. Right, the fact that Jesus does the Father's works shows that he is the Son who is one with the Father. But their oneness doesn't mean that he is the Father. It doesn't mean the Father and the Son are one and the same person like in different modes, right? Which is, which is why we don't thank the Father for dying for us. The Son died for us. And yet the oneness is more than just the Father and Son working together as a team. Believe the work Jesus said that you may, end of verse 38, you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see, the unity between the Father and the Son is a unity of mutual indwelling. So closely united are the Father and the Son is that, that one is in the other. And this mutual indwelling is that eternal basis for the perfect unity of will and purpose and activity of the Son and the Father, which we can see in their works. They are one and yet distinct. There is the Father, there is the Son. The Father sent the Son to die for us. The Son offered His life as a sacrifice for our sins. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son. They're not to be confused, but they dwell within each other. They are one, one God. 
Now at this point, Jesus has crossed another line and the Jews are wanting to arrest him again. And so in verse 39, they, they try to do that, but he escapes from their hands. And guess where he goes? Verse 40, he goes away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remains. You see, what's happened is the apostle John in his gospel is actually taking things one full circle. Goes back to where Jesus was back in chapter 1 where John had been baptizing before his arrest and his execution, the place, the other side of the Jordan, where he had been pointing people to Jesus, saying, oh, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus ministers there, verse 41 says that many came to him. And then John deliberately reports one of the things they said about him. Look at that in verse 41. They said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And then he adds, and many believed in him there. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus does all these miracles in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders don't believe. He goes here, where John purposely talks about the fact that John did no signs, and he got all these people believing. The Spirit is emphasizing the work of John the Baptist here was without signs, and yet was a remarkable ministry of pointing people to Jesus. And so when Jesus came, they said, yep, everything that John said about this man is true. And unlike the Jews in Jerusalem, they, they believed in him. Friends, you don't need signs to witness to Jesus. Jesus did signs, and they're meant to lead you to faith. But even if you and I never do a single miracle, it's still okay. We don't need to any more than John the Baptist did. What we need to do is faithfully point people to Jesus like he did. It is not those who see the signs who believe, but those who are his sheep. And those who are his sheep will hear his voice and come to him as we faithfully share his gospel. And brothers and sisters, as we share the gospel with others, the shepherd calls his sheep through us. Don't criticize yourself too much when people don't listen to you, when you want to tell them that Jesus is king. Don't get too upset when people accuse you of blasphemy by saying that God has a son. Don't get too down on yourself when People reject Christ. It may simply be they are not his sheep. But go and share the gospel with confidence because God really does have his sheep. And those who are his sheep, those who have been given to Jesus by the Father, they will listen and they will follow Jesus.
even without signs. If, like John the Baptist, we leave behind a legacy of people who believe in Jesus, what a wonderful legacy that would be. If we die or we leave this city, leaving behind people who came to Jesus because we brought his message to them, what a, what a wonderful legacy that would be. In fact, even if we leave behind one person who believes because we've told them about Jesus or we've brought them to church, what a wonderful legacy that would be. Because if they believe in Jesus, they are his sheep. His death on the cross in the other place has paid the penalty of their sins. They will never perish. But like Jesus, they will rise from the dead and enjoy eternal life with the Father and the Son in glory forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we who belong to Jesus, thank you so much for giving us to your Son to be his sheep. Thank you that he is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. Thank you that he has called us through the gospel and we have followed him. Thank you that he gives us eternal life and that we will never perish, and that none can snatch us out of your hand. May we always respond in faith and gratitude and humility and obedience for what you have done for us. Help us to trust your Son, to trust your Word, even when we don't understand. And help us to tell others about Jesus so that they too will come to believe. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. So please stand.